You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Hey, North Canton Chapel, good morning. Happy Sunday. It's good to see you. This is Palm Sunday, and um, I thought I'd start us off this morning by just uh, telling a little bit of a story. And it's an old story that you may know, but um, maybe you've heard it in one way. I'm going to give it to you in another way. So here we go. Once upon a time, there was a little boy who was loved by a tree. And this tree and this little boy would get together and play all the time. The boy would climb up the trunk, he would swing from the tree's branches, and he would gather the tree's apples. And the tree and the boy were very happy. One day the boy came to the tree and he says, okay tree, um, I need some money. And the tree says, well boy, I, I don't have any money, but why don't you take my apples and you can sell them in town. Then you'll be happy. So the boy took the tree's apples and he stayed away for a very long time. But the boy came back, and the tree said, Come, boy, come swing on my branches. And the boy says, I don't have time for that right now, tree. I, I need a house to keep me warm. I have a family. And the tree says, Well, I, I can't give you a house, but you can take down some of my branches and build yourself a house, and then you'll be happy. So the boy cut off the tree's branches and went away for a very, very long time. But then the boy came back, and the tree says, come boy, come climb up my trunk. And the boy says, I'm too old for that tree. I don't have time for climbing a trunk. What I need is I need a boat so I can get far, far away. And the tree says, well, I, I don't have a boat that I could give you, but why don't you cut down my trunk? You can make yourself a boat, and then you can sail far, far away, and then you'll be happy. And so the boy cut down the tree's trunk, and he sailed away. And the boy stayed away for a very, very long time. But then after many, many years, the boy came back, and by now, the boy was very, very old. And in the few words that followed, the tree and the boy had one final, very meaningful conversation. But you're going to have to wait about 25 minutes for me to tell you what it was. It's a children's story. Uh, it's a very famous story by an author named Shel Silverstein. It's one of my favorites, and uh, it's called The Giving Tree. And I think it's something of a parable. What brings lasting joy? It's kind of this long, enduring question, because here's the thing. We're the boy, and so often through life, we kind of slip into the casual inertia of things, looking for money, provision, stuff, and we all just kind of drift through life sometimes, don't we? Um, it's interesting, though, how in these recent days, how this crisis that's kind of descended upon our country and upon our world forces our attention to get focused elsewhere. We start to look inwardly. We start to ask tough questions, and all the apples and branches and trunks don't seem to matter nearly as much as they did even a month ago. And some of these questions might be, okay, how long is this thing going to last? Where is joy in the middle of all of this craziness? What am I doing? What am I here for? Who am I? We start to sit in this long enough, we ask these questions, and if you've asked those questions in these recent days, you're not alone. Um, I've seen this come in our online community um, through comments and a text thread. Um, I've seen them in text messages, through prayer requests, little shades of versions of these questions so much over the last couple of weeks. And so you're not alone if you've asked those questions. I'm sure you've probably heard and asked the same. 
The search for lasting joy, it would seem, is back on the front page. Well, this morning is our fifth and final message in our teaching series called Solas. And so just quick review, week one, what is my ultimate source of truth? And we said it's scripture alone. Week two, why would God love me? We said it's his grace alone. Week three, what makes me right with God? We said it's faith alone. Week four, last week, was who accomplishes my salvation? And it's Jesus alone. And then this week is week five. And the last question, what is the point of all of this anyway? Where can I find lasting joy. And so this morning we're going to dust the pages off an Old Testament book called Ezekiel. And I'm super excited to get there because God uses this grizzled old prophet to give his people three beautiful reasons why seeking God's glory is the only way for lasting joy. Seeking God's glory is the only way for lasting joy. But before we get too deep in the woods, let's set the context a bit here. So who is Ezekiel? We don't know a ton about him personally, um, but we do know a couple of things. So I want to give this for you right out the gate while you're finding Ezekiel uh, on your phone or on your Bible, in your Bible. So a couple of things. First, we know that Ezekiel lived at a time when God's people were exiled in Babylon. If you remember our teaching series this last fall through Haggai, um, it's about the same time frame, about 500 years before Jesus. So this is about 2,500 years ago. The second thing we know about Ezekiel is that he lived among the people in a section of town, this sector that was completely devoted to prayer. So that's kind of interesting. He lived in his own house. He was married. Um, he was probably something of like a community chaplain is how you should think of Ezekiel. The last thing we know about him is that he is a prophet. And in the Old Testament, um, a prophet had two jobs. And I want to hit them to you or give them to you really quick because they're going to come up in the text in some really powerful ways. So the first job of any Old Testament prophet was forthtelling, forthtelling. And that was very present oriented. It, um, it was about looking at the situation that God's people were in and saying direct things in a direct way. It was usually very uncomfortable words um, to people who needed to be woken up. So that's forthtelling. But then a second job of a prophet is foretelling. And this is boldly looking to the future. So if forthtelling is present, foretelling is future-oriented, looking to the horizon and describing what will happen one day. And I want you to think about it this way. Imagine if a prophet is on a mountaintop and he looks down in the valley and he can see the situation very clearly. That's forthtelling. He can see a situation and call it out, forthtelling. But he can also see mountaintops off in the distance. And some are close by and they're clear. Others are further off and they're hazy. That's foretelling. So future oriented. Both of those two functions are going to come into play in our text this morning. So what about the people, the audience? Who are these people and what are they feeling like these days? So here's all you need to know for now. God's people are living in a land that is not their own. And they've been sitting there long enough to get really introspective. They're sitting there so long that the rhythms of their life have been pulled out from under them. And their minds have kind of collectively drifted into pondering the deep things of life. Sound familiar? Anybody relate to that? I think I do. Um, but in their case, they're not binge-watching Netflix like I am. They're actually sitting back and they're pondering their relationship with God. They know that they've displeased God, hence the exile in Babylon, and they're beginning to lose all hope that things are ever going to get back to where they were before. Enter Ezekiel. And in his book, God uses this old prophet and he gives his people insight into why he deals with them the way that he does. 
And just a heads up, it's incredibly unexpected and incredibly beautiful. I think you're going to love it. So three reasons why seeking God's glory leads to lasting joy. Here's the first one. First reason why seeking God's glory leads to lasting joy is because seeking God's glory prompts us to worship. It prompts us to worship. So join me in Ezekiel chapter 20. Um, We're jumping like right in the middle of this book because there's a lot in here. Ezekiel chapter 20, and we're going to jump right into Ezekiel doing his best forth-telling job as a prophet. He's saying some very difficult things that his people probably don't want to hear. And what we're going to see is a short summary of Israel's history in three acts. And each one of these acts has a pattern to it. The language is laid out really incredibly, and I don't want you to miss it. So watch for this. Here it is. It's a fourfold pattern. It goes like this. God's promise, the people's rebellion, God's anger, and then God's mercy. So promise, rebellion, anger, and mercy. So we're starting in chapter 20, and we're going to kick things off right in verse 6. And this is God, through Ezekiel, remembering what it was like when he called them out of Egypt so many centuries ago. Here's what he says. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt and into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that's the promise. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Here's the third part. But I acted for the sake of my name. And we're going to come back to that phrase over and over again this morning. I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in sight of the nations on whom they lived. So did you see that? God promises he's going to bring his people out of Egypt. That's verses 6 through 7. The people rebel. There it is in the beginning of verse 8. His anger is kindled, the end of verse 8. And then God stays his hand. He acts in mercy. He doesn't punish them. That's verse 9. And that pattern, that promise, rebellion, anger, mercy, that happens over and over again. Take a look in verse 10. He says it again. He says, So I led them out of the land of Egypt. I brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes. I made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he'll live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths, a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They didn't walk in my statutes. They rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he'll live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath among them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. Like, that's strong language. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. Did you hear it there again? It's promise, rebellion, anger, mercy. But then one more time, verse 18. And I said to the children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be a sign between me and you that you might know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes. They were not careful to obey my rules. And then he says, I will pour out my wrath. But then again in verse 22, he says, I withheld my hand. I acted for the sake of my name. So do you catch that cycle? It's kind of like a clothes dryer. It just goes over and over and over. Promise, rebellion, anger, mercy. 
And don't you get the sense of God's like deep emotional state here? It's like he's internally conflicted. He says, I, I, I promised you this, and you broke my heart. You rebelled against me, and so it brought up my wrath, but then I acted this way. He's just like laying his emotional cards out for his people. He's like, this is how I feel. It's incredibly, like, almost human disclosure for God to be this emotionally vulnerable. He's like, look, look at what you're driving me to. Look at what you've brought me to. I resolved I would treat you like this, but then in the end, when it came time to pull the trigger, I couldn't do it. It's like this whole chapter is like this sovereign push and pull of like this inward groaning of holy agony from God going, ah, ah, ah. And here's what I want us to see. It isn't what the people did. It isn't really even what God did, but why God does it. That's what's important to see here. That's the beautiful thing here. He acts mercifully toward his people, but why? In case you missed it, it came up three times. He says, I acted for the sake of my name. In the Old Testament, the, the idea of a name and a person were synonymous. You were your name. And this shows up over and over again, just in the Psalms. See if you can fill in the blank on this one. Psalm 23, very famous one. I'll bet most of you watching at home know Psalm 23 or at least parts of it. So fill this blank in. He guides me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Psalm 25, when David pleads with God for forgiveness, he says, Please, God, for your name's sake, pardon my guilt. Psalm 31.3, he says, You are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Psalm 109, when David pleads for God's help, he says, Act on my behalf for your name's sake. And then the last one, probably most striking to me, is Psalm 143. He says, For your name's sake, God, preserve my life. It's like this constant drumbeat, like a filter you can drop over the Old Testament that God always acts for his name's sake. So let's bring this up to the surface. What does this mean? And what does it have to do with us sitting here in 2020? It means that the most enduring source of joy for sinners like you and like me is God's faithfulness to his own name. So let's get personal. This pattern, promise, rebellion, anger, and mercy. Does that sound familiar? Does it remind you of anything else? How about like every day of our lives, right? This is me. How many times have I walked that path every day? God promises me something and I rebel and I kindle his anger, but he treats me mercifully. So let me ask you, why do you think God ask, act, or treats you and acts so mercifully toward you? I mean, we blow it all the time, and not just on the small stuff. We blow it on the big stuff. Because beneath this frustration of our own self-love, there is a deeper melody, a purer song, and a stronger cadence. God's glory fuels his mercy. He is merciful to me, and he's merciful to you, because he would rather achieve our reconciliation through his mercy than our alienation through his justifiable wrath. God acts mercifully toward us because as sovereign ruler of creation, he gets to choose how and when to whom he discloses himself. He enjoys complete unquestioned freedom, and he chooses to show himself off as a merciful God. Why? Because it makes him that much more worthy of worship than any other being in the universe. Practically, here's what I want you to hear. God will not let go of you because if he did, he would not be a strong redeemer. 
God will not give up on you because if he did, he wouldn't be a patient father. God will never stop pursuing you because if he did, he wouldn't be a loving savior. God will always be faithful to you because he is faithful. God will always be enough for you because he is sufficient. God will never stop loving you because he never goes back on his word. And so the question that we've got to square with isn't, what could I ever do to earn his favor? That's not the issue. It's really, will he remain faithful despite my selfishness? And the answer is yes. And the reason is because he said he would, and that's all. It has nothing to do with me. It is ultimately more glorious for God to be known as a merciful lover of sinful people despite my selfishness, my, my faithlessness, and my rebellion. And so when we read in his word, whether it's these dusty pages of Ezekiel that we find ourselves in, or it's like the glimmering edges back in the garden, or when it's like a trumpet blast at the end and we hear mercy rising up all throughout God's word, that should do something in us. How do you approach a God like that? How are we supposed to interact with him? Someone who is so completely holy and just and righteous, but also so merciful and gracious and kind, how are we supposed to approach him? It's different than any other human interaction or relationship that we have. Answer, worship. The point of my life is not to earn God's mercy. The point of my life is to enjoy God's mercy. And that's the first reason why seeking God's glory leads to lasting joy, because seeking God's glory prompts us to worship. But now we're going to shift gears a bit, okay? So remember the two functions of a prophet. There's forthtelling, the stuff that's present-oriented, and foretelling, the stuff that's future-oriented. So Ezekiel's scope is about to widen. He's going to shift from boldly preaching about the people's current situation to boldly looking to the near future. And here's the second reason why seeking God's glory leads to lasting joy. Because seeking God's glory teaches us to trust him. Seeking God's glory teaches us to trust. Let's pick things up again in verse 33. Chapter 20, verse 33. So before we get into this, I want to give you something else to watch for. Uh, because just like the scope of Ezekiel's message is going to change, the tone is going to change too. So in this first section, we got this like very emotional um, look into God's heart. Um, he was very, God was very vulnerable. And in the second section, we're going to pick it up. It's like God goes, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm done. This is it. This is how things are going to be. So I want you to watch for something. So kids, if you're at home, um, let's say like kids 12 and under, what I want you to do, count how many times God says, I will, in this next section. He says it a bunch. See how many you can get. And then also, see if you can figure out the reason why God asks acts the way that he does. And you'll, you'll pick up on it, okay? So there's a lot of I wills coming at you. I want you to count them. Here we go. Chapter 20, verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with a wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. We'll come back to that in a minute. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. 
Skip on down to verse 40. He says this, On my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions, choicest of gifts, all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you've been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Skip on down to verse 44, because here's a little insight. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for the sake of my name, or for my name's sake, not according to your evil deeds, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So did you catch it? How many I wills? I counted 14. There's a ton in there. Now, here's why that's important. It's like God grabs the steering wheel and he says, all right, I'm driving. Sit down. Watch. And it's not this violent thing. It's not like he's going and like he's trying to discipline his people. It's actually really tender. Go back to verse 37. In verse 37, he says two things, and it's probably the most obscure part of this, this passage, but I want to get into it. He says, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bonds of the covenant. Here's what that means. In Ezekiel's day, and in the ancient Near East, when a sheep passed under the shepherd's rod, it, would, it was a sign to say that the sheep belonged to the shepherd. Do you hear what God's saying there? And when he said, I will bring you into the covenant... That was like a ceremony by which a sheep actually became part of this flock, similar to how we might think of like a cattle brand today. Guys, this is shepherding language. God wants to shepherd his people. Second thing, though, I told you to watch for in this section that I think is interesting is the reason for all this shepherding language. Why would God do this? And it comes up again. He says, so that you will know that I am the Lord. Did you see that come up in there? He goes, I want you to know me. Put another way. God deepens the relationship he has with his people, with all these I will statements, because he wants them and us to understand one thing. The best thing for God's people is not that God would deliver them out of the thing, but that he would preserve them and they would learn to trust him through the thing. And in this case, it's a Babylonian exile. And we've all got these things that come up in our life. We say, God, get these things off of me. I want to get through them. And God goes, no, I don't want to do that yet. I want to preserve you through the things so you can learn to trust me here. Remember where God's people are. They're in Babylon. Nothing is comfortable. Everything is foreign. They are not where they want to be. Everything is strange. Everything is not awesome. They want life back to normal. Anybody relate to that? And then here comes Ezekiel going, hey guys, I got good news. There's a day coming. I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know exactly all the details yet, but it's coming and God's going to lead you like he's never led you before. He's going to be with you like he's never been with you before. You're going to enjoy covenant worship like you never have before. And you're going to see his presence like you never had before, which means a lot for these people, like Red Sea much. <laughs> and so you're the people, right? And you go, man, Ezekiel, that sounds great. And you got one question. And it's the same question God's people ask over and over and over again through the Old Testament, like this constant, unavoidable hum. And it's the same question that we all ask when we are in the depths of despair and despondency and doubt. We say, okay, God, when? Or, like, how long? And God, in his wisdom, doesn't answer. 
Instead, he answers the one question they didn't ask. Not when. He doesn't tell them when he's going to act. But he tells them why he's going to act. Do you know the easiest part of a marathon? Easiest part of a marathon. The first mile and the last mile. Right? The first mile. Because everything's exciting and it's brand new. You're like, I've been training for this. Like, all my friends are here. They're cheering me on. There's all this, like, endorphin rush in the air. And then the gun goes off. And, like, that first mile, you're pumped. All that pent-up energy just gets dumped out. And then the last mile makes sense, too, because you're looking at it and you're going, oh, we're just down here. We're just, oh, we can just kind of make it, right? And so that, like, second or probably, like, ninth wind kicks in and you can make it across the finish line. You know what the toughest part is? Everything in the middle. Because it's not new and exciting anymore. It's just mile after mile. Sometimes you lose track of where you are. And you can't quite see the finish line what makes things tougher is sometimes you don't know if the middle's this or if it's this. I know so many of you have been engaging in our um, NCC online community on um, 7 o'clock on Facebook, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. People from other states, even other countries, have been hopping on. People who will never set foot inside 715 Whittier here in our building have hopped online and they've made comments interacting with what God is teaching us and they're joining in what God's doing there. And so over the past few weeks, as we've talked about as a church, um, you know, what has God been teaching us? What is he trying to show us? There's been one constant theme that's come up again and again and again. It sounds like this. God, this isn't fun. God, I don't like it. And I don't like it because I don't have control. Resonate with that? I think we all do. Like, we're all control freaks at heart, okay? Because we're just people. We're not in a comfortable place. We're not where we want to be. Everything is foreign. Everything is new. This is not exciting anymore, and we want life back to normal. Does that sound like someplace God's people have been before? I think so. And so here's the thing. How many of you know that nothing grows relationship like a risk? Risk grows relationship, and God does his best relational work in the middle because it's in the middle where we learn how to trust him again. And so many of you have made that comment, saying, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what God's teaching me. I don't know what the whole purpose of this thing is. I'm just choosing to trust him. And that's so good. But for those of us who are reluctant to give up control, here's my word for us. You don't get to be a control freak and be shepherded by God at the same time. You have to pick one. So either you can be in the driver's seat or God can be in the driver's seat. And I don't like that choice because I'm right there with you. I feel the same thing. But here's what I want us to hear. It's the same thing for us in April of 2020 in North Canton as it was 2,500 years ago for God's people in Babylon. The opposite of control is trust, and trust is always relational. It's willingly, decisively going to God. Here, you deal with this broken, fragile heart of mine because I just can't. And that's a good thing to say. So here's how this feeds back to God's glory alone, him acting for the sake of his name. God's people always win when we relearn how to trust our shepherd. God's people always win when we relearn how to trust our shepherd. You don't want a life where you have all the answers because then you would get all the credit, and that's boring. Either God gets the glory or I do. And these recent days in the life of our church, in the life of our town, in the life of our city, in the life of our state, our country, in the life of our world, all these recent days have tilled up the soil of the church 
to plant seeds of trust that will sprout in weeks and months and years to come that would not have otherwise gotten down because typically our soil is so hard. And so that's the second reason why seeking God's glory leads to lasting joy because it teaches us to trust. So now, last point. We're going to widen the lens even further. Ezekiel has moved from his present situation to a mountaintop in the near future, and now he imagines a mountaintop. He can see something kind of far away that's even further out. And what Ezekiel is about to describe is the most beautiful, most striking, and most unimaginable picture of restoration God's people could ever hope for. And it's the third reason why seeking God's glory leads to lasting joy, because seeking God's glory restores relationship. It restores our relationship. And so we're going to slide a few chapters to the right because I want to to get you a glimpse of this thing. God has one more thing he wants his people to hear. And so we're going to pick up Ezekiel's thought in chapter 36, verse 22. So a couple chapters over to the right. Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to start in verse 22. Here we go. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. You get that? That sounds so familiar. Slide down to verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Sound familiar? That's what he just said. But now he he pushes it even further. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What a beautiful picture that is. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, so that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Doesn't that sound so good? He's shooting this like big giant, like, look at what I'm going to do. Skip down to verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Beautiful picture. And the waste and the desolate and the ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Mic drop. This is God again just pushing all the way further forward. There's four things he's going to do here. He's going to gather his people. He's going to cleanse his people. He's going to give them a spirit. And they're going to return back to this promise, this paradise called Eden. Now, it's important that we understand what's going on here. Because this is starting to get into some kind of obscure stuff in the Old Testament. But he's not talking about a construction project. Okay? He's not talking about a worldwide virus that God's going to wipe out. He's actually talking about something way deeper way more difficult, way further out, and way more beautiful. Something that hasn't even happened yet here where we are in 2020. He's pointing to a time where one day 
Paradise will be restored under his king. And we call that king Jesus. This is pointing to his future kingdom. This is ultimate restoration. But right now we're stuck. We're caught in the middle. So here's where I want to go before we wrap things up today. I want you to be there. More than anything, I want you to be a part of that picture. This is real. Jesus is going to rule. He is king. He will return and he will rule on earth. And if I could reach through the screen right now to give you one thing, I want you to be there. I don't want you to miss it. The other day, um, Hannah, our 10-year-old daughter, asked me a, a question that I know that so many of you parents have probably gotten over the last uh, just couple of weeks. Uh, in one form or another. And here's what she asked me. She says, Dad, why did this stupid virus have to come anyway? This is dumb. And I totally agreed with her because she's totally right. There is a reason for it because we live in a sinful world. And I know that sounds like, you know, like a churchy answer, but it's the true answer. Our world is infected by sickness and sin and disease and war and injustice. It's everywhere. And Jesus teaches that because of his grace alone, we can place our faith in him and his righteousness alone on our behalf, not to make us moral or to make us immediately free from the problem of pain, but to deliver us from, to deliver us from something that we all suffer from, the sickness of sin, and everybody is infected by that. And so while we live on this earth in the middle, we ache for Eden. And it will be restored one day. We will get back to that paradise one day, but it won't be without Jesus. And that's the thing that we've got to square with. So my question today is, do you know him? Not do you recognize him or know about him. Do you know Jesus? Have you acknowledged your brokenness and confessed his worthiness? Because if not, this world is the best thing you've got. And it's great, but you were created for a whole lot more. We were created for worshipers. We were created to trust him. We were created for a restored relationship. And so all of this like sprinkling and cleansing and bringing, all of this like swapping out a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, all this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, all this garden imagery that Ezekiel just unloads on this unsuspecting people, all point to one larger ultimate goal, that God's people would glorify him by enjoying him forever. And I want you to be there. And that's the third reason. Seeking God's glory leads to lasting joy because it restores relationship. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree. I have nothing left to give you. I have no more apples, the boy said, that's okay, I'm, I'm too old, I have no teeth for apples anyway. The tree says, I have no more branches for you to swing on. And the boy says, that's okay, I, I'm too old for swinging. The tree says, my trunk is gone. And the boy says, I'm too old for climbing. So the tree told the boy, come, sit, rest with me. So the boy sat down and enjoyed the tree, and they were both happy. Here's the thing. Nobody gets to the end of that story and says, man, that boy was wise. Everybody gets to the end of that story and says, man, that was sad. Because on the face of it, that story is a tragedy of how 
The total selfishness of a little boy trapped in the web of his own agenda completely kills this relationship. And it's easy to believe that maybe in the midst of our own inertia of life, that maybe we've done the same thing with God. But I want to read you another story as we close out this series and close out our time today about someone else who gave himself away for somebody else who is very selfish. This comes from Philippians chapter 2. And tell me if you can't hear shades of that parable in the word of God this morning. Speaking of Christ, here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7. It says, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you catch it? Complete emptying, completely giving himself away for selfish people who didn't deserve it. Why? Glory to God alone so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Seeking God's glory leads to lasting joy. And guys, it starts and ends with Jesus. So I want to wrap up this series just by praying for you. And maybe you've been tracking with us or maybe you've been watching online and you don't even know anything about our church or who I am or what we're about. Here's the deal. We exist to make much of Jesus every day to everyone because we believe there's nothing more satisfying than trumpeting the glory of God, making much of what he has done for us. And so I want to pray with us today. Um, I want to pray God's blessing in the name of Jesus. So let's pray. Father God, it is good to come to you to rest in the knowledge that you are always seeking your glory. You're always acting in the sake of your name. And that brings us the most lasting joy that we could ever have. So God, we are selfish people. We know it. We take the good things that you give us and we use them for our own ends. And all the while, God, you withhold your anger and you treat us mercifully because of Jesus. So God, if there's anybody right now listening or watching who doesn't know you, God, would you reach into their heart, take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. Father, we want to say that we love you. We say thank you for Jesus who makes all of this possible. And so we are happy to boast in what you have done for us. Father, we love you. Bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.